The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. I'm Ian Stone and welcome to Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. It's Valentine's Day, so we're going to be talking about love uh, this week. How much we've loved the results of our top four rivals for the last weekend. How much we love celebrating that win over Wolves. And indeed, how much we love the fact that the Wolves players found it so annoying. Um, But before we do all that, our two guests this week are the writers for The Athletic, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Morning. Morning, Ian. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but thank you happy valentine's day to you uh, do you say that is that a thing that people say uh, but i okay. don't know i just wanted to say it to you i hope that's all right uh, <laughs> i've ambushed it, you slightly but you did you know. i was better than being actually i wouldn't mind being ambushed by cake to be honest with you uh, <laughs> if you're not following the english political scene you know read up on, on newspapers by the way uh on that subject of celebrating um amy you mentioned it to me and i saw it as well ian writes tweet uh, the day after we beat Wolves and Ian Wright looking very dapper as he often does uh, the little picture of himself and uh, and it said still celebrating and uh, we all enjoyed that did we not Amy? Well I, I, what I liked about it was that even though it was a still picture you could sort of you could you could as if you could see a video of the of the walk it was one of those kind of like yeah slightly sort of dancey you know strutting Vaguely comedy walks that you feel that he was probably doing at the time, appropriately. <laughs> yes, uh, and it was, and we like the sentiment, and we'll talk about that celebration thing uh, a little bit. Um, before we do that, while we're on the theme of love, and and happy Valentine's Day to you, listeners as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what Amy, can I what? can I just put myself in the camp of people who absolutely can't stand Valentine's Day and say, Amy. you know. Empathy to all the kind of unhappy Valentine's Dayers out there. We're feeling it. You're covered as well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, We want to talk about why you love the Arsenal, actually. We just thought very, very simply. Uh, James, why do you love the Arsenal? One of many reasons. (laughs) Uh, There's so many reasons. I suppose the real thing I love about Arsenal is because I get a buzz out of being there and live sport that I don't quite find anywhere else. I was at Wolves in the away end on Thursday night. and Posted a good picture as well, a good little yeah, video. Yeah, and, and, and that reaction when the full-time whistle blows, all of the kind of stress and anxiety of the preceding 90 minutes uh, can really evaporate in a moment like that and be replaced with pure uh, elation and shall we say over exuberant celebrations whether wolves like it or not <laughs> and it's that ab- <laughs> i think it's that ability to yeah to kind of uh wash away uh other emotions with just a kind of tide of joy isn't that um, isn't that just football though isn't that just football i mean i would have thought of most teams most uh, fans of most teams obviously there's certain teams that don't get as much joy as we have uh, in the past 20, 30 years. But um, isn't that, everyone gets that from football? That's more of a football thing, isn't it? Yeah, that might be a fair point. I mean, I don't, I mean, I personally don't get that from any other team. So I guess (laughs) for me, it's an Arsenal thing. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe Amy's answer is more specific. We'll have to see. 
Well, we'll find out right now, Amy. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I do agree with James. When you say, what do you love about Arsenal? Kind of the instinctive first things I think of are, you know, my old favourite hugging strangers, which again, I don't tend to do that much in just walking down the street in regular life. Um, <laughs> no. See some bloke outside the, you know, the, the bakery or something and just fall into his arms going, yes! Um, <laughs> They've still that, got croissants left. <laughs> <laughs> Come here, you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, and singing, uh, singing communally, I find very joyous. I love, yeah, you know, just being part of the crowd when a song starts up and the, you know, hairs on the back of your neck start to tingle. Um, just from an Arsenal specific point of view, I suppose. Why why do you fall in love with Arsenal? Personally, a lot of that's got to do with Highbury. So I have no idea whether that would be a different thing for, um younger generations, but Highbury was a big part of it for me. And walking down Avenel Road and seeing the crowd outside the marble halls was just the best sight in the world and just felt like home like nothing else. And just the whole sort of art deco and the way Arsenal had that feeling of class, I think is something that marked the club out as special. You felt like you were somewhere that wasn't quite like other clubs. Yeah, I've got to agree with that stuff at the end about Highbury. Um I was going to say the red shirts, by the way. Uh, it, it specifically hit me when I was seven or whatever when I went to the games the first time. And I remember walking up the steps and it was a night game and the floodlights were on and those red shirts came out onto that beautiful green grass. And I was hooked. I think the things you mentioned, the singing, the humour, um, being at Arsenal Spurs earlier in the season at the Emirates and we're all singing Tottenham Get Battered. Um, it, it was just pure pure unfettered unadulterated joy and and uh, and I guess people get that from football generally but uh, we get it from Arsenal and White who gets up and Lacazette who touches it and Arsenal who steal the lead through Gabriel from unmissable range well, we did also get it, by the way. We got it in a big way on um, Thursday night. James was at the game, our most recent game, uh, last Thursday. We beat our Wolves 1-0 at Molyneux uh, in what is fast becoming our signature performance. <laughs> a hard-fought win with 10 men. At uh, this time, it was Gabby Martinelli, who was the recipient of some rather Jobsworth-type refereeing from Michael Oliver. Um, our fourth red card in 2022 and 15... Uh, 15th since Mikel Arteta was appointed in December 2019. So we thought we'd ask the question this week, do we have a discipline problem or are they out to get us? James, I'll start with you. Five red cards this season for this calendar year. Do we have a discipline problem? I mean, Wrighty, I saw Wrighty did a tweet. So he's, well, maybe he was talking about it on some show, basically saying he doesn't think we do. Um, what do you think? I think we probably do have to say. I, 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 I think the numbers don't really lie. I mean, I, I think in each individual case, you can debate the refereeing. And I think that, you know, on Thursday, Martinelli, uh, it was an unusual sending off, certainly. And I think that what we saw there was a referee who was becoming increasingly irritated with Arsenal's time-wasting and, you know, ability, sort of uh, attempts to run the game down and commit quite cynical fouls and effectively punished one player for that in the harshest possible way by sending them off. Um, 
But nevertheless, I do think that this is a problem. You know, the amount of times we're going down to 10 men, it's completely unsustainable. And as much as we can all celebrate a backs to the wall, uh, 10 men win on Thursday night, that if we continue to do this, there will be occasions where that is not the outcome. And But for a few yards or a fingertip save, it might well, or an offside, it might well have not been the outcome on Thursday night. So, you know, Mikel Arteta said on Thursday, he's running out of ideas for how to deal with this, but, uh, and I, I know he's going to talk to the officiating authorities about it uh, too, from that perspective, but we do desperately need to get handle on this. We need to keep 11 players on the pitch. I don't think my heart will handle it otherwise. <laughs> No, it isn't an easy watch, is it? I mean, you love it when it when the final whistle go, goes and you're like, yes, 10 men away at Wolves, which is a really, really good result, by the way. But um, we're making it difficult for ourselves, Amy. Do you, do you see any um, validity in the uh, conspiracy theories going round saying that, that, that uh, the authorities are anti-Arsenal? I mean, I'm asking this as a serious question. I know people dismiss this sort of thing, but what do you think? I think it's quite easy to get convinced by it when you see kind of compilations on Twitter and comparisons and why this one gets given and this one doesn't. And, you know, you see very similar events treated differently and it's often the case that Arsenal get a raw deal. So I I do understand that and to an extent I feel it. But in my heart of hearts, all my life of supporting football I've found that I have to try my utmost to cling to the idea that the referees are more in you know might have moments of incompetence rather than moments of bias I think once you go down the road of thinking referees are biased it's very hard to keep um, a kind of a sensible outlook on anything (laughs) really spoils it 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 will drive you mad and I, I just don't want to think that um, however, I I do believe that that you know occasionally there might be unconscious bias rather than conscious bias, and that's a very different thing. Uh, and I think that sometimes a whole series of circumstances and environmental kind of issues can create a scenario where it just becomes easier to give this or that. And I think actually Arsenal's record in itself. Um, doesn't help on that front because I think the more you get seen as a team who gets a lot of players sent off, probably the easier it is in that split second if you're a referee out there on the pitch that, you know, you go red rather than yellow. Um, the, the the other thing that has bugged me for a very, very long time just on referees, but I do think it's strange, is the predisposition of um, referees that come from the North and the Northwest you know, we are a national sport with strength all around the country. And I remember doing an article many years ago. I spent, I think I spent a, a day or a couple of days with um, with some referees to try and get a kind of understanding of what was going on. And I went and watched a game with a referee's assessor to find out how that works and how they go about judging what's going on on the pitch to try and explain it to people like how are these things dealt with? You know, and there's a there's all sorts of formulas, and and it's you know they tr- they try and and they judge each individual decision on the different sets of criteria and so on. But as part of that, I remember looking into 
into it all. And it was, I can't remember the stats exactly, but it felt like something like 90% of the referees were from sort of, you, you know, a, a radius of, a, of roundabout mostly the northwest and then spreading out slightly further. And that just doesn't seem quite right in a way. Uh, I don't understand why there isn't the South hasn't produced any top-class officials for a long time. Certainly growing up, there was uh, David Ellery from Harrow and a couple of brilliant referees from Oxfordshire and all sorts of places like that that I remember. Again, whether that feeds into unconscious bias or not, you have no idea. But I suppose if you were born and bred in the Northwest and that's your football upbringing, you might, in the somewhere in the back of your mind, have less time for the Southern Softies. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting enough, David Ornstein this morning has written in this athletic column that the Premier League is set to launch a programme to improve standard and diversity of refs. Um, more cockney refs, James, that's what we need. We want someone running out in some sort of pearly outfit, right? Yeah, Call well, blimey <laughs> governor, the Queen Mum's great. And I'm from uh, Bow Bells. Well, mind you, yeah. West Ham probably get uh, more Well, Islington, favorite. born and bred, yeah. would Islington be my preference be if we could. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think uh, the diversity point's a great one. I mean, ultimately, you know, referees are predominantly uh, what white, white guys in their late 40s. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think a, a mix of different ethnicities, genders, backgrounds would be a very healthy thing. And he's absolutely right and long overdue, really. In officiating, I mean, you know, we all remember Uriah Rennie refereeing in the, in the Premier League because I think he's pretty much the only black referee I remember in the Premier League. And I do think that, uh, you know, that is a big issue. I, I, it's interesting talking about the perception of the team, though. I mean, you know, when Arsenal used to rack up all those red cards under Arsene Wenger, there was this sort of slight sense of they're a dirty team or they're overtly physical or aggressive. Great, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was enjoyable, but I don't think that is that holds true at all, really, no. anymore. No. And Arsenal, I think Amy's right that their reputation precedes them. It sort of becomes easy to give them a sending off because they accumulate so many. And let's be clear, there's only one way for the club to fix that, and it's by stopping giving referees that opportunity. But I, I, I do find it interesting how Arsenal's kind of frailty and their their perceived frailty and the and these red cards seem to kind of happen in tandem. It's a completely different perception now than what it used to be, and yet the red cards still come. I think it's uh you know what you talk about having sort of red cards for being dirty or physical. It feels like a lot of the bookings and red cards come from being a bit emotional. And I I, I I'm interested in the kind of. Uh, emotional temperament of this team because does that come from the, the manager I, I don't know but I mean it does seem that a lot of the little incidents are just you know wanting it that little bit too much and getting a little bit maybe frustrated by something or um but the other thing that I think is really interesting on a kind of bigger picture level on that front is I think it wasn't that long ago when any kind of adversity seemed to completely knock Arsenal sideways and in particular, another thing about the kind of character of the team is that when there'd be a situation where other results would fall for Arsenal and there was an, a window of opportunity, that seemed to paralyse them. And instead of being able to kind of like enthusiastically jump through that window of opportunity, it almost seemed to make them cower and panic, like the size of what was in front of them just 
became overwhelming and performances tended to be awful. I think about how many times you think, oh, if Arsenal win this game, then dot, dot, dot. And invariably, it would be a massive disappointment. And that was something that struck me about that Wolves game, which is this current team at the moment feels different. It feels like it's not afraid to grab those opportunities. And that is going to be, you know, whether that's just a a bit of a mirage and it turns out not to be the case as the remaining uh, part of the season goes on, uh, you know, that, that, that might happen. But if that is really there and they are have a level of defiance and determination and a lack of fear and a bit more bravery collectively, a bit more determination to like not let things go against you and just give up. That's going to make life very interesting over the next few weeks. James? I was just going to say that I think I find Amy's explanation there for the red cards of being a sort of product of emotion, maybe the most compelling uh, reasoning that I've heard. And I think it's very palpable in this team that they are very emotionally invested in every game. I mean, look at the celebrations at full time. As much as the criticism of that was, I thought, unfair and unnecessary, you can see that they're kind of close to the boil uh, throughout the season at any one point. And I actually think what's going to be really interesting is just managing that. You know, it's like Mikel Arteta's got a pot on the hob and it's in a seemingly a quite healthy place right now. But if it were to just slightly boil over, we could be in real trouble. And... Um, you know, there are some very emotional characters in this team. You look at the way people like Ramsdale, Gabriel, Granit Xhaka, Lacazette express themselves on the field. There is a, an emotional intensity there and that can be incredibly positive. But if it just tips over or if things start to go against you, that can also be a self-destructive force. So I do think that might be one of the kind of sort of stories of between now and the end of the season how Arteta and his players are able to manage the emotion and the pressure that comes with that. Yeah, I I mean, that that emotion you're talking about, I think about Man City at home and Gabriel when he scuffed up the penalty spot and then he did the foul and you could see how much it meant. And, And to a certain extent, it's something that we can all connect with, right? I mean, I remember that feeling after that game. I was gutted, but also very emotionally invested in that team. Um, I sort of prefer it this way, I have to be honest, and cold calculating Manchester City just brushing teams aside without really any sweat. Um, but I don't want to go on about this conspiracy thing, but Orbino did a... Uh, I don't. I genuinely don't because... Uh, have you been radicalised the- by Twitter, Ian? <laughs> I don't believe there is a conspiracy, but here's, this is what I'm saying, but here's a stat, Albino did a stat, Premier League discipline since the 2nd of January 2019, which is the last time Burnley got a red card. Uh, in that time, Arsenal played 115 games, Burnley have played 113. We've done the same number of fouls, essentially. We've done three more, 1,148 uh, to 1,145. We've had 15 red cards, they've had none. None. Now, obviously, it depends on the sort of fouls that that we're talking about. But, Amy, is there something about, maybe you said this already, is there something about the character of the team that referees look at and then they, they sort of go, well, they deserve a red card more because... I don't know, because they're Arsenal? Perhaps, I, I, I'm just putting this out there. I don't know whether this is true or not. But those uh, are damning I- stats, though, aren't they? They are damning stats, but uh, 
I've got two words to say, really, which is John McGinley. Just <laughs> hear me out. Go on. <laughs> when Bruce Rioch joined Arsenal from Bolton Wanderers in 1995, the dressing room, let's just say, got a little bit put out by the amount of time that um, <laughs> Bruce Rioch spent telling everyone how, what he used to do at Bolton and what his Bolton players used to do. And I think there was a particular... Uh, struggle with him telling Ian Wright about John McGinley and what he used to do at Bolton. And in the end, Bruce Rick didn't last very long. I think that, you know, making comparisons, especially when you're asking sort of so-called bigger clubs to look at the example of so-called not-quite-so-big clubs, it can be a little bit mischievous, let's just say. Yeah, yeah. Fair I enough. think those Go clubs on, commit different types of fouls as well. You know, if you think about Burnley, they spend more time without the ball, behind the ball. Arsenal, I feel like a lot of the bookings they accumulate are for, I guess what we would term, quite cynical challenges to sort of stop counter-attacks. Yeah. And that's something that Mikel Arteta really was focused on at Man City. There's famous documentary footage in the the Amazon All or Nothing about City of him telling the City players, you know, as soon as you lose the ball, bring the guy down. If you have to take the yellow, you have to take the yellow. And Arsenal are getting better at that, but they're also paying the price. And I think maybe there's a skill in that uh, that they haven't quite learned. You know, there's a clumsiness about the way Arsenal are going about things. And I think, as you say, perception plays a part in that. Timing as well, by the way, against Wolves the other day, Max Kilman did such an obvious bookable offence in about three minutes in on Gabriel Martinelli, who ran past him. Thomas Partey, 25 minutes later, he did a foul, which was actually less violent than Kilman's, and got booked. But in the end, it was just an accumulation of fouls across the pitch that Michael Oliver basically went, all right, I've got to, I've got to book one. But we seem to get a lot of that bad luck. One more thing before we move on from Wolves. The celebration thing. I would urge people to have a look at Arsenal's column this morning. It's very, very funny, talking about Wolves players celebrating after their win. It's... Amy, it's nonsense, isn't it? We can't... Of course we should be allowed to celebrate wins. That's 1-0 away at one of our big rivals for a top-four place. I mean, if you weren't allowed to celebrate wins if they only got a trophy, well, Spurs wouldn't have celebrated for quite some time. Man, I wouldn't have celebrated for about eight years. It's nonsense, isn't it? It's all about the celebrations at the end of a game. Of course it's nonsense. Um, but the other thing I think that sometimes you know, in this age of, of, of social media and mass media and everything being instant and what have you, is that's not helpful. So, for example, I, I genuinely think that the, was it Dendonka, the Wolves player, who had uh, come out with a comment about it being like, I haven't seen them celebrate like that for 10 years, you know, it's like they won the league, which seemed to be the sort of chief uh, agent provocateur in this case. Um if you're a player and you just come off the pitch and you are emotionally invested, as they all are for both teams, and you know within about three seconds of coming off the pitch, someone shoves a microphone under yeah. your nose and asks for a reaction, probably quite a lot of what you say is, you know, not particularly considered, which is understandable. I mean, even thinking about myself, I I would have been very very embarrassed if someone had had a hidden microphone in my house in this sort of, you know, last minute and final whistle and uh, so on after the end of that match. You know, I think I spoke an absolute bucket full of nonsense that I would be totally ashamed of in the cold light of day. And if someone put that on Twitter, I think I'd have to deactivate, 
you know, it's life. It's we're, we're all in a situation where that's the point about football. That's the point about sport. That's why people love it is that you get, you're all in. You, you throw yourself in at the deep end emotionally and lose yourself for the duration of a match and afterwards. James put it really well earlier when you were talking about that kind of, you know, the brain is, fa- is a fascinating thing that the kind of the 90 minutes of, uh, of agony uh, and and pain can get completely um, absolutely sub- subsumed by this the endorphins of happiness when you win, and you know the celebrations reflect that. You don't remember the the, the ninety minutes of where you feel like hell. You just remember that uh, the pureness of that of the joy at the end, and that's what we're all feeling. Players, managers fans everyone so i don't really have a problem with if if wolves were a bit cheesed off i think i've been to millions of games where the people who get beat feel riled by the opponents and don't take it well not a big deal i I i'm more interested in 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 i i think it's indicative of this arsenal team and how they feel that they're onto something and how invested they are it's there's a sense that that they really care about, you know, what the fans are feeling. It's they're not pretending. They feel like they're all in it together. I think. James, you felt that. I'm assuming on uh, Thursday night, you were there. I did feel it very strongly, and you know, Wolves fans were pretty apoplectic uh, at points during the game <laughs> and at full time. Some of them in quite close proximity to me, um, but I thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of it. And uh, yeah, I, I think there is something really growing there. There's it was interesting. You know, sometimes you're at a game and you're sort of listening in on other conversations that are happening around you. And there were these guys in the away and behind me, the row behind, they were having a debate uh, about Granite Xhaka, believe it or not, for sort of most of the 90 minutes. But the way in which it was framed was quite sort of touching. Like there was a guy being like, I'm just not sure he's the right guy for us right now. And then his mate was being like, don't be so negative. And he was like, I'm not being negative. I love, I love this team. I'm just thinking of, you know, what's the next step. And it was all couched within this thing of like, we're not being negative. We're just trying to be constructive. Uh, And I just found that sort of indicative of kind of, I don't know, maybe it's too shorthand, too much of a simplification, but I feel like a couple of years ago, you know, he would have been a, these players, if they weren't playing well, they would have been a donkey or they would have been worse, you know. Uh, and I feel like at the moment there's this kind of goodwill that is existing between supporters and players. And that was certainly reflected uh, at Molyneux. And I know Wolves didn't like the celebration. So I reckon if we beat them next week, we should all be on the pitch or something afterwards. A parade. A parade. And by the way, I'm glad that the rest of the fan base has caught up with my feelings, uh, which have been like this for a while about this team. Uh, actually, I, 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 can you imagine uh, <laughs> if, if Arsenal beat Wolves next week that there's a like PA announcement of, you know, the um, open-top bus parade <laughs> that's about to start imminently outside yes. uh, the yes. Herbert Chapman statue or whatever. I would be... So It'd be beautiful. It'd be beautiful. Oh, um, it was a good weekend, by the way. The results are really going our way at the moment. Uh, United drawing and looking poor, by the way. Spurs looking even worse than that. West Ham really should have won it, Leicester, and in the end, we're lucky to get a point. Um, in terms of us, is it? Should we just think about Brentford next week? I'm sure that's what the players are feeling anyway. It is just, Amy. You're nodding enthusiastically. 
it, there's too many twists and turns, right? There's so many games. There's still, what, 16 games to go for us. So many things can go wrong, or 14 or whatever. Um, Brentford at home, which, by the way, would have been a gimme under Arsene Wenger, but not now, I would assume. So we have to um, just get three points there and then worry about Wolves after that. Oh, just you say it would have been a gimme under Arsene Wenger. Do you remember that game against Hull City when they just got promoted? Here's Anne Here is Giovanni. Fantastic effort! That is stunning from Giovanni! A classic goal! <laughs> Sorry, anyway. Yeah, that was God, insane, that though. really well. That was um, a 40-yard shot into the top corner. I mean, you know what? You're right. I've got, you're absolutely right. But you know what I mean. Most of the time, teams below the top four, 3-0 at home, would be almost guaranteed, whereas it's not now. It's going to be a fight, isn't it? OK, I'm going to ask you this question before, uh, Ian, when we were chatting, and I'm going to put it out to both of you. How many goals do you think we're going to score over the remaining 16 games of the season? <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I mean, think we... that, you know, defensively, things are looking quite good. There's an actual unit there that makes sense, so that understand each other, that know their job, and there's a vibe, and they really, really don't want to concede a goal or make a mistake. But I think that, you know, what's going to be the difference between whether the, the, the end game works out or not is how many goals Arsenal can score, in all probability. 16 James, games, how many goals? You go first, James. I mean, it's not my field, the statistics, but I would say if they don't score 30, they're going to have problems. Is that fair? Like a couple of goals a game? At least 1.5, you'd think. So 16. I guess they would need at least 25 goals. Um, so I'll put that as my my minimum I, I I think just on this I know it's not quite the question but as much as it was deflating seeing Alexander Lacazette miss that late chance um, I have to say I was fairly surprised to see him in the position running uh, beyond the defence into a one-on-one I don't think I can't remember the last time I That's saw Alex Lacazette striking. doing that so uh, ever the optimist, I'm choosing to do, derive some encouragement from the fact that he actually had a few decent chances in this game, which frankly, he's not always been able to get into those positions uh, previously. I think 24, 25, I think they could get there. They need Martinelli yeah. on the pitch. They need Bukai Saka playing well. They need <laughs> goals from other areas, beyond doubt. Right. Um, uh, I think 12. Uh, 12 1-0 wins and 4 0 noughts. <laughs> And I think that'll do for us. Um, I, I genuinely, Amy, goodness me, who knows? I mean, I, the thing about Lacazette is he could get 10 in the last 15 games, couldn't he? I mean, he actually could. He is a decent striker. But we don't, we're not a free scoring team, are we? Let's be fair. We don't have, we don't make huge amounts of chances. It's not like we miss seven or eight chances. Do you remember a game when Bentner missed six or seven presentable chances and then laughed when he got substituted. I think that was Burnley at home. I mean, if we had six or seven presentable chances in the next three games, uh, I, I, I don't know. I'd like to see us get 25, like James said. Um, I'll be amazed. I think that was way too high, Ian. I think yeah. I, the way I think, the more I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, there's a few yeah. games there where if Arsenal score at all, <laughs> they've done pretty well. You know, I'm thinking of Chelsea away and things like that. Um, so I'm thinking maybe, 20. Maybe I'm thinking 20, 20. Early 20s is more 
realistic. Amy, we're we gonna get well, our teens. I was about to. I was about to compliment James, who you know, not a statistics man, on uh, the quality of his answer because actually. <laughs> At the moment, Arsenal have got 34 goals from 22 matches so far this season. Um, so that's around about 1.5. So you were bang on there, James. Uh, and going by the same estimate with another 16 games to go, that would be around about another 24 goals if they continued the same ratio. The problem I've got, Amy, is we... working out where they come from. <laughs> ah, that's my point. Exactly. Exactly. There is that. So 24 goals is, you know, exactly who's going to chip in with it, with enough of them. It's definitely a, you know, it could be a bit of make it very nervy because, you know, if you're hoping for that one to two goals per game, that might be enough most of the time. You know, they go on feeling a bit, feeling a little bit. <laughs> you asked the question, Amy. Um, I know I asked the question and now I'm, I'm worrying. Um, but I just think yeah. it's an interesting point of conversation because that's, you know that is that's probably going to be the definitive point on what happens. Well, Adrian Clark, who is our stats man, will be on the pod next week, so we can get a definitive answer. To be honest, on how many goals we're going to score in our last what have we played? Twenty? I can't remember what we played. Twenty four is it or twenty two? I get mixed 22. up. Twenty two. Twenty two. So our last sixteen games. Um, briefly, Arsenal drew nil nil with Chelsea in the Women's Super League on Friday night. Um, uh, it's a good point. Uh, we remain two points above Chelsea, have a game in hand. There are eight games to go uh, in the Women's Super League. Uh, and we also play Wolfsburg in the uh, in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Um, you can head to theathletic.com to read Art's report and his excellent piece also on uh, Jonas uh, um talking about that game um, and the women's team in general. This is Handbrake Off, uh, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at the time. Uh, now, Amy wrote a piece for The Athletic last week entitled Arsenal and Player Sales. It's complicated. <laughs> It's a great title. Uh, the piece goes into some detail about Arsenal's reputation for being poor sellers. Uh, the list of players they've let go for nothing uh, include Aaron Ramsey, Jack Wilshire, and Danny Welbeck and many more. Um, Amy, is this inevitable what happens with Arsenal when you have a couple of changes of manager in quick succession that you've got players in the squad that you don't want and contractual negotiations get get left in some way or they, they they leave them too late? I mean, are we, to a certain extent, a victim of circumstance? I don't think it's just changing of manager. I think it's changes of, you know, people involved in recruitment that is uh, that is probably just as influential there. But is it inevitable? I mean, I think one of the things that I think is obvious is it's harder than ever to, to be selling players uh, and selling well. And I think even the teams that have done it really productively in recent years have been a kind of shining light on, you know, to almost blind us with, with what, what you could do, um, may well find it more difficult. And the main reason for this, 
which Arsene Wenger predicted a few years ago when Alexis Sanchez and Meza Urza were both coming towards the last six months of their deal and Arsenal were in kind of panic mode about what to do with their two higher status players potentially walking away for nothing at the same time. And he was like, look, this is what's going to happen. You know, uh, this is how the market's going to go. Um, the best players are going to want all the cards uh, when it comes to negotiating their, you know, their deals and they can leverage a situation if they're going to be out of contract. And, you know, clubs are not going to overpay for even the best players in these situations. And I think you just have to look around the whole of European football and some of the biggest clubs there are to see that this is a much broader problem than an Arsenal problem going forwards. And, you know, you, Mbappe, who, who Paris Saint-Germain is the best example, probably bought for a world record fee um, three or four years ago. He's probably going to leave for nothing. So that's exactly the sort of problem that Arsenal have been facing. So I think there's two things. One is, is as a club and as fans, we have to reevaluate how we assess players' transfers and their worth and really look at it as, you know, how much value for money are you getting for the duration of a player's contract rather than what the residual value might be if you sell them. And and, and secondly, you know, I mean, looking forward, it is one of those things where you think Arsenal have got to be very careful about the likes of Saka and Smith-Rowe. You know, this is a trap that is going to be everywhere. So it's going to be harder than ever, I think, if you're not very, very successful and you have very happy players to be tying them to long-term deals. Yeah, quite. I mean, is this a case of buying young then, James? Uh, because at least that way, there might be some sell-on value. I mean, it's a bit more of a risk, perhaps. But um, perhaps the strategy that we're we're pursuing now is the is the right one because we've been burnt the other way, haven't we? Yeah, I think so. And I even think that that was probably one of the uh, determining factors in deciding to pursue a couple of Premier League players or English players because, theoretically, they retain value. And one of the difficulties Premier League clubs is who can you sell to? Who out there in Europe is able to take on a Premier League club's uh, contract, you know, in terms of the amount of wages that players have played? If you sign an English player, there's a chance at least that another English club will take him if you choose to offload him. Even that, though, is no guarantee. I mean, look at the situation with Eddie Nketiah, who is hurtling towards the end of his contract. Um, if he goes abroad, Arsenal will get next to nothing for him. So this is a shifting landscape. I think the pandemic has probably been a bit of a catalyst in that respect, in terms of clubs being a bit more reluctant to pay out transfer fees. It, it's an interesting one from Arsenal's perspective. I mean, had they been able to sell more players last summer or achieve better fees in January, maybe they would have been able to bring in one or two new additions. I think almost certainly that would have been part of the plan, but ultimately those deals haven't materialised. And I think the key is just protecting the assets that they have with long-term contracts early. I mean, Arteta was asked this week about Bukayo Saka. He'll be two years out come the summer, as will Gabriel Martinelli as will William Saliba, uh, I believe there are one or two more, where you know, if, you, if you're serious about keeping those players, you probably need to start addressing that. And Arsenal were paying Pierre-Emerick a lot of money, um, having removed him by and large from the wage bill. I think they probably need to set about redistributing that to their younger stars to secure their, their playing, but also their financial future. 
Yeah, I'm up for any if anybody wants to make a collection for any of those players you just mentioned there. I'm up for sticking a couple of quid in at the stadium next time we're down there. Um, one other thing, uh, Stan Kroenke's American football team, the LA Rams, won the Super Bowl last night. His teams do win major trophies, although they've staked the house on it, by the way, uh, listening to the commentary yesterday. Uh, Amy, does this mean anything for us in terms of, you know, when people were moaning about the Cronkers when they came in and, and I was at a demonstration against them not, I don't know, a year and a half ago. They do produce winning teams from time to time. Should we be encouraged by this? Well, at least there is some example of success. So, yeah, you know, it's if, if, if you're owned by people who never, ever win anything, then that would probably be more disheartening. Uh, whether it influences them to think, I love the taste of this, we need this feeling elsewhere in our, in our uh, portfolio, well, that would be just swell, wouldn't it? It would be just... <laughs> it would be awesome, I think the Americans would say. Um, I should say also happy birthday to Bakary Senya and Philippe Senderos. Uh, happy birthday, chaps. Um, let's have a song before we go. Uh, James, I'll start with you. Uh, just quickly, by the way, I think, all being well, we'll have an interview with Philippe Senderos tomorrow up on The Athletic about he's now the technical director back at Servette, the club where he started his career in Geneva and where Arsenal signed him from. So he's only 37 today, but undertook a, a training course to be a technical director in Spain. Still very much in touch with Arsenal and Edu and Mikel Arteta, who he played with at Everton. So, yeah, it's quite a nice read. Uh, should be out tomorrow on The Athletic. Have but you spoken to him already, by the way? Yeah, I spoke to him already, yeah. Oh, right. He's not still having nightmares about Didier Drogba, is he? <laughs> no, I asked him about Drogba, actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, he seems to have processed it. Let's put it like that. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so a song. Well, I'm actually going to take my lead from our producer, Abby, who, um, based on uh, the headline from Amy's article about transfers, uh, It's Complicated, suggested I pick uh, Complicated by Avril Lavigne, and I concur. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Uh, Amy, what about you? Um, I'm going to go for something that uh, catches the mood of celebrations and the newfound communal vibes between the fans and the players, which is the Jacksons. Can you feel it? Yes, I believe we can. I'm having uh, Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You because uh, it, it is Valentine's Day and it is the Arsenal and I always will. Some days you drive me nuts, but, you know, we understand that. Um, that's it uh, for Handbrake of the Arsenal podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. Thank you to Abby, uh, our producer, and thank you, Amy and James. And uh, enjoy Saturday. I'm Ian Stone. See you soon. <laughs> 